Welcome back to Common Fan Commentary. I am your host, Adam. Today, joining with me is Nick. How you doing, Nick? I'm doing fantastic. How about yourself? Doing great. Today, we are talking MOB offseason. Nick, that's what I want to bring you in to talk about because there have been a lot of insane signings. The Premier League spends this much in one window as a collective for one player. First signing is near and dear to your heart. It's Aaron Judge, who is probably the largest free agent to come up in recent memory since Bryce Harper. He was the superstar signing that was going to come into the free agency class. And then what does he do in his contract year other than break the American League home run record get the MVP, nearly get the triple crown, and just turn into a different hitter altogether. Someone you just do not want to face in the box. Nick, what do you make of signing Aaron Judge, 30 years old, to a nine-year, $360 million contract? Well, obviously the most important factor here, especially for the Yankees, was the fact that they could not let him go. He is the heart and soul of the team right now, even more so by the fact that he was named captain during the introductory press conference. He means everything to the team, and it was it would have been a complete, it actually almost was a complete PR disaster when we thought he was going to the Giants for about 20 minutes because there was a, they probably had a contingency plan after, if, if he did decide to sign somewhere else. I'm thankful that the plan did not come to fruition. I think it would have been placing money in players that I personally wouldn't, given their, you know, history of health issues, and I know, I understand Aaron Judge has health issues, but. When we look at the grand scope of things, he's been a little healthier than most superstars have in the last, re- uh, last few seasons. And who do you mean to compare him to? Well, it's the uh, free agency journeyman um, known as Carlos Correa. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, obviously. We'll get into him. Yeah. We'll get into him. <laughs> <laughs> so my, my big thing is, do you really think that the nine years for a 30-year-old who as you mentioned, has suffered some injury issues over the past few years. I mean, the how many full seasons has he played since he's been a pro? My main concern as an armchair GM uh, and also the price figure, it's reminding me a lot of Albert Pujols' contract for how long it is, how old he'll be when it's ending. Will he be producing when he is 39 years old, especially at the historic season that he had this year? That definitely seemed to be a more of a blip on the on the outlier uh, graph than what he's normally produced don't get me wrong he's been fantastic in general but he hasn't been as monumental as he was this year so do you see him like continuing that or like it is the yankees right they can afford bad contracts that's just kind of the third game are you comfortable as a yankees fan having him knocked down for nine years up until he's 39 years old a uh, simple answer, yes. When you look at a player who signs a long a long deal like this, it's nine years, there's no expectation that he's going to produce at 39 years old or at 38 years old. The expectation is what's going to happen in the first four years of this contract, because that's really what you're paying for. Um, he's on the wrong side of 30. Uh, however, he's such a specimen, and he takes... I do think he'll miss time throughout this, this contract. There's the odds are that he's, he's he's probably going to get hurt. Question is is how much of a you know toll is that going to take on the team? I don't think that he's going to be out in what people are expecting, where they think like he's going to get hurt and be out for the year. 
Uh, I really think that this is the guy that, you know, is the cornerstone. He is the franchise player. He's, he's got, he's got all the tools. He just needs to stay out there. And I think he's going to do whatever he needs to do to make sure that he does. But my question is how, how soon does this become the John Carlos Stanton contract? I mean, we could just keep talking in a circle with how he could stay on the field, right. but I, th- there is general positivity with locking down your captain for the future. I mean, the Yankees haven't had a face of the franchise since Derek Jeter, um, so I think that's just important, not just in financial terms and production terms, but also off the field, locker room ways. If the Braves re-signed Freddie Freeman, it would have been a move similar to that. Um, but that's a different form of reality that we can't live in. Another gigantic signing. We're going to stick in New York, almost as monumental. And I guess a lot. it's a lot more weird to see Justin Verlander, 39 years old, signing a two-year, $86 million contract to the New York Mets. And the Mets are a whole can of worms right now because of how much they spend on free agency and how much they almost blew the luxury tax out of the water if they signed Carlos Correa. So first off, we'll, we'll stick with the people who are actually still signed to the mm-hmm. team. They would go with Justin Verlander after they weren't able to bring DeGrom back. Brandon Nemo, who signed an eight-year, 29 years old, $162 million contract after an adequate season, I would say. That's, that's the outrageous one to be. And then Edwin Diaz for five years, $102 million. So if they went with the Carlos Correa contract, which was 11 years, $350 million for a 28-year-old, they would have had to pay more money in luxury tax than thir- almost 13 different ball clubs pay in salary alone. When you're so much higher than the Yankees on a graph of how much you're paying your, your starting and backup players – there is something a little bit broken with the system. I agree to an extent. I think the the most positive outcome that can happen from this, from a fan's perspective, is the implementation of a salary floor. That'd be for the fans, because now you would have teams that were forced to spend money because they do have the money. These teams that are in small markets are not poor. They have billionaire owners. They're rich. They can afford to pay their players. They simply choose not to because they want to make more money. The bad outcome from this, from a fan's perspective, is that the owners are more likely going to implement a salary cap, which would just be devastating in terms of overall payment towards the talent and what talent deserves to get paid. When I go to a, when I go to a baseball game, you know, I'm paying to watch the payers play. I'm not, I'm not concerned with the money that's going into the owners' pockets whatsoever. It's probably going to wind up being a salary cap. And I just think that that's not the correct move. I think we need to make it so that way more teams spend money and not try to limit other teams. I mean, we are just in a stalemate right now between if you institute a salary cap, that hurts the players and what they deserve to earn. And then the salary floor is bad for the owners. So when you have a collective bargaining agreement between both those sides, there's there's no way you can have both right. it's either one or the other. if you institute both then i feel like that turns into the what the nhl is what the nfl is where players probably aren't getting what they deserve as much and it's just going to be a lot more about salary cap and manipulation rather than 
what we're trying to do is get players fair contracts, but also we would like a competitive league. Whereas it, the Reds, the Orioles, the Rays, namely, none of those guys are going to pour out even close to $100 million for their entire roster. I mean, we saw a couple years ago where two players on the LA Dodgers were making more in one year than the entire Tampa Bay Rays on the opposite side of the World Series. And so when you have the Mets, who are currently playing for Verlander and Max Scherzer, $40 million a year plus, guys on the wrong, the far wrong side of 30, yeah. we have to ask and wonder, how can we make this fair? The Mets are challenging that idea altogether and just saying money is actually zero issue. Get whatever player we want. If we want Brandon Nimmo to stay after... Again, eight-year contract for a guy who hasn't played a full... He's played two full seasons in his entire MLB career. He had a decent year. He's a good on-base guy. He was decent defensively. But, I mean, you're paying him like he's a cornerstone of the league. It's just the discrepancy between this is why I think a lot of people are turned off by baseball. Because if you're not a fan of one of these big market teams, you're already checked out by the time... July rolls around because you know you can't compete with these guys who are spending crazy money. And I think that's a part of the Moneyball problem that the league has as well. Is that when Moneyball was popularized, where it was how do we budget our team, get a budget players and still get wins and still eke out those wins, I think that ruined the entertainment value of the sport. Have teams that probably should be investing in certain positions that are trying to get bargain bin players like the athletics is trying to get so much from so little a, a salary floor in general i think is a perfect fix but it's never going to happen because the owners would have to agree to that if i'm an owner right and i have a profitable business and someone told me hey you need to spend more money because we said so i would say no if if i didn't care about what the on-field product was as an owner then i'm just going to stick with making money. So I guess we just need more owners that actually enjoy the sport. I think is the biggest problem because I think a majority of them don't, i.e. <laughs> in a case study on bad owners. Yeah, I think we'll see another I think we'll need I think we'll see another strike in the near future in baseball, which is unfortunate. I mean that's the only way that it seems that change is made. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it stinks from the fans perspective and most of the time Fans rally behind, oh, we just want to watch baseball. Players accept the owner's agreements. It's like, no, they deserve some fair compensation for what they put themselves through. Exactly. But for me, as a Braves fan, the Mets are scary because they're buying, they're just buying players to solve their problems, which is terrifying. There's nothing that anyone else can do to stop them. Right, but the Braves are also in a good position where they have a lot of their young talent locked up for the future, and I think they're pretty comfortable with where they're going to be. And especially for them right now, they're actually projected top projection for a win total uh, in this upcoming season. I'm a bit pessimistic about that. I understand why, but they still have a good collection of talent on the team, especially with the addition and catcher of Sean Mm -hmm. Murphy. Which was a weird trade, a three-way trade that sent William Contreras, a young catcher, off to Milwaukee in that part at Oakland sends to the Braves all-star catcher Sean Murphy and then signed him up to an extension. 
I thought that was a pretty strange pseudo lateral move. I mean, Murphy's a lot better defensively and Contreras, he was more used than the DH role anyways. It was very strange from typical Braves function. They'll still be fine. Yeah, you're my only team that I follow that is winning games. So I'm resting all my hopes on them right. in across all sports. Right. And if it wasn't, <laughs> if it wasn't, yeah, and if it wasn't for a Philadelphia team getting hot the right, moment, they were probably back in the World Series. And speaking of Philly, they added a pretty big piece of uh, Trey Turner, eleven years, three hundred million, reunites Turner with Bryce Harper. Took less money so that he could play in Philadelphia, but man, he's getting paid till he's 40 as a shortstop who relies on speed. It's a good signing as a player, but holy cow, that contract. <laughs> it's a pretty substantial investment, and like you said, he is a speed guy, and speed guys generally don't get paid that well, obviously, because as they get older, the speed starts to dissipate. But I think people forget that Trey Turner is also a very elite hitter, and I think that also went into the calculation of, of his... Uh, of the monetary value of this contract. Now there is risk in signing a speed guy because he's, but in the short run, their ultimate goal is to get back to the world series after getting a taste for it. And I think that move helps them right now, which I think a lot of these moves are made for is just helping right now. Worry about it later has downsides. Cause obviously, like you said, he's going to be 40 years old at the end of the contract, but to also iterate my point earlier, you're not paying for him to play at 40 years old. You're paying for him to produce now. Yeah, I mean, even for a GM, your job job life isn't that long unless you're a really good one. So you might as well make the move now. Hopefully you win a World Series and then people will revere you for it. And then at the end of his contract, you won't you'll be long gone. Yeah. <laughs> but do you see them winning? Do you see them beating the Astros with the addition of Trey Turner? Uh, I mean, they were up to one, but no, because I don't think they have the pitching for it. That's what I've thought for a long time is that they they had a hot bullpen. They weren't consistent at all through the entire regular season, hence why they were the second wild card team. Every game was that was late, it was sweating. But man, if Philly gets the Eagles and Phillies to be good in World Series contenders and Super Bowl contenders, man, that's that's just bad for all sports, I think. <laughs> I think we find it. I don't think Philadelphia is winning the Super Bowl. This was the free agent class of shortstops. Uh, we mentioned Trey Turner. Uh, we also had Carlos Correa, Xander Bogarts, and Dansby Swanson. Correa was the weirdest one by far um, because he almost caught a whole bag from the New York Mets. They had to pull out of that contract because of his physical results from his rehab. He almost got a contract from the Giants as well before the Mets which was like 10 years, 300 plus million dollars with that. Instead, he has to accept six years to return to the Twins, 200 million. What do you make of free agent wander? <laughs> so obviously it, it, it's a very weird situation because it's two teams that both said, hey, we want to sign this long-term contract. It came time for the physical. They said, okay, hold up. We need to rethink this. And obviously, his agent is Scott Boris, so they obviously had to pivot quickly. So we saw right after the Giants rescinded the offer, the Mets tried to swoop in and offer him the 12-year offer. Steve Cohen talked a little bit too early before we even got to the physical portion. And then we saw the same thing happen. Now, for the reports that came out from, I believe it was John Heyman or Bob Nightingale, 
obviously we know Correa agreed to the six-year deal with the with the Twins. Um, <clears throat> for clarification for people listening, it's not his back like it was a few years ago. It's his ankle. Uh, it's an ankle injury that happened back when I believe he was still in the minors for the Astros. And it's been something that's been lingering ever since. The Twins, however, they have nothing to lose. They're not a big market team, so they just kind of said, hey, we'll resign into the high annual value that you want. We know it's not the long-term deal that you want. And there was a report from John Heyman and Bob Nightingale that said that the Mets were willing to go to the six-year deal and offer him that, as well as additional years. However, the stipulation was that after the sixth year, he would have to undergo a physical every year to basically continue the contract, which is just a lot, which creates a lot of headache for the player, for the team. I think that's how he ultimately wound up back on the Twins, who, again, they have nothing to lose. And it's just a weird situation overall. I mean, I'm glad because the Mets would have been $500 million in payroll, which would be second by the Yankees, who are at $350 million. And then I would have had a much larger tirade <laughs> about how the Mets are just straight up cheating. The, the Twins, they don't have any other offensive output on their entire roster, really. I mean, they're kind of one of those aimless franchises that they made the division series a few years ago, and then they saw that as their, oh, time to push. And it left them with not a lot of prospects, not a great farm system. And now they're stuck with Correa said he'll come back. Okay, we'll take him no matter what. Feels a bit more like a desperation move. Collect anything they can in terms of offensive output. (laughs) In your opinion, Nick, what was the best signing so far this free agency? My favorite, aside from personally, which was Judge, was the other Yankees signing, which was Carlos Rodon helping solidify the rotation as one of the top rotations in baseball. And it also is another another look into what the Yankees front office is is favoring in terms of pitching, which is high velocity, high movement, strikeouts. And I'm excited to watch him. Now, he's a dynamic talent for sure. And getting him for six years, 162 at 30 years old is a pretty reasonable tag considering that he was a Cy Young talent. Um, he just didn't have the innings necessarily to make him a front runner. Um, but when he is on the field and like you said, high strikeout guy, he is, he's a lot of fun to watch as a pitcher. But uh, my favorite signing so far, completely under the radar. Uh, it was one of the first signings of free agency, but it was Jose Abreu to the Astros. Because Jose Abreu is an AO MVP winner, constant, solid hitter. He always hits two fi- at least 250, 30 and 100 every year. He goes to a team that needed a first baseman. I mean, that, that was their worst offensive piece of the past two years. And so that he gets to replace Yuli Gurliel. I mean, I know they let Verlander go, but that's because they have a hot prospect in Hunter Brown to take his mantle in the rotation. I think that the Astros are going to be a dynamite team over the next couple of years still, which is frustrating because they're, they're just become the next dynasty out of the American League, I think. They're on track for a dynasty. I think they're not a dynasty yet. It's two titles in six years is, is not a dynasty. It's it's a very good run. Uh, they have been to the World Series in what? But we're out of the last six seasons, which is 
which is or since 2017, they've been in the World Series. They've been in the World Series four times, which is good because you want to give your you want to get there as often as possible and give yourself a chance to win as much as possible. But right now it's it's two. Um, if they get to, I think if they get to four in that span, then we can say it's a dynasty. Three, you can you can start to kind of you can start to kind of get that argument or get those talking points started. But I think at four, it will be solidified as a dynasty. Well, I think that they are the still the strongest contenders for taking it this year, especially after adding a Brayu. I mean, having just that solid middle of lineup piece. They're going to be a terrifying lineup, which they already were. But slotting him next to Jordan Alvarez and Alex Bregman and Jose Altuve, plus Kyle Tucker, it's like, gee, who, who am I supposed to pitch to? Right. <laughs> Upside of that, who do you think the worst signing of the year was? Oh, gosh. Um, I would say, yeah, I don't understand the Giants signing Michael Conforto to a two-year, $36 million deal when he hasn't <laughs> played in how long? Um, two years, four years. Yeah. What, what constitutes him getting 36 million? (laughs) (laughs) That's a good point. That's a good point. I mean, they, they were, they did run about ideas when they lost out on judge, you know, they had to sign Mitch Hanniger, which is a good signing on its own. But if it's to supplant what you almost had in judge, it's pretty short of what you need. Yeah, and that's just part of it. And they're a team that they're in a contending window because they have talent, but it they're all just kind of a land of misfit toys on short-term deals that they they don't have their face of the franchise after they lost Buster Posey. That's just kind of plain and simple. But what do you what do you think about the Giants this year? I mean, they made a couple moves. I mean, they signed Mitch Hanniger um, in the lineup back. I know you said that they can kind of compete, but it's tough to compete when your competition is the Dodgers and the Padres, who are now going to have a full year of Juan Soto and are only going to get better. And with the addition of Xander Bogarts and the Dodgers, who are still the top dog in that division. So I don't really see them contending. I mean, they could compete probably for a wild card spot, but in terms of winning, I just don't see it. They're kind of too old to necessarily go full in. Yet they're not bad enough to re to justify a rebuild. Yet you're not sure what the the future of the franchise really holds. I have two worst signings. You might argue with one of them. The first one is the Red Sox signing Kenley Jansen to a two year deal for thirty two mil. He was horrendous with the Braves. I mean, he may have had you know top five in saves last year, but. Every single outing, you were on the edge of your seat because you're like, how is he going to blow this game? And the Red Sox, I feel like they're just trying to make big name signings so that they could ease their fan base from losing another homegrown talent in Xander Bogarts. They were able to lock up Rafael Devers on a long-term deal, but Boston fans are pretty restless after losing Mookie and Xander in what could have been a core of a dynasty. So the fact that they signed Kenley is like a kind of a nothing move. Right. I'm going to give you a quick heads up. Raphael Devers will be traded in, in three years. <laughs> <laughs> they're in a weird spot, man. <laughs> yeah, because they're just bad. Yeah, they're not, better, <laughs> they're not better than the Yankees. They're not better than the Blue Jays. I don't even think they're better than the Rays. And I'd actually give more 
Shoot, I'd say the Orioles probably finish. I mean, they've got yeah, a, the they got a heck of an upside. Season again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and what was what was your second signing? The, so the one this is more the honorable mention, but Jacob Degrom to the Rangers. Again, it, it's a get the argument of what will he give you in the near future versus the the long future. It's a 34-year-old who hasn't pitched a full season since 2019. Gets a five-year deal for 185 mil. Centerpiece of the pitching rotation for a team that just got a new stadium. Feels bad. Yeah, he's going to pitch really well when he's there. And yes, he is probably one of the top five pitchers in the league when healthy. But holy cow, when is he healthy? And the fact that the Rangers are trying to solve all their problems the same way as the Mets is not a sustainable way to future points with wins. They're hoping that Josh Young can make larger leaps and bounds this year. Marcus Simeon having more time at his position will hopefully help. And John Gray hopefully panning out. And Corey Seager played really well, but they didn't have any pitching, which is the problem. So they went out and got DeGrom, but DeGrom hasn't pitched a full season. It, it just reeks of we're trying to squeak into the playoffs. This is a team that is just trying to sell tickets. And I think that uh, signing to Grom is definitely puts people in the seats. Cause I know they follow that up with signing a goalies to try to bolster the rest of their rotation, but it's just the, they're not going to compete with the Astros and I don't even think they're going to be, they're not, I don't think they're going to finish better than the angels next season. The good news is that they, they know they'll definitely be better than the Oakland athletics. And that's what they got going for. Them. You mean the Las Vegas athletics? Oh, that's right. Yes, they will be the Las Vegas <laughs> Athletics either next year or the year after. Speaking of, the MLB has talked about two new expansion franchises because the number's at 30 right now, and they want to go to 32. Yes. Um, what two cities would you put your teams in? Uh, number one is Nashville. There is a market there, a large investment group that wants them there. There is a number of former players that want them there, and I think that's I think that's the number one target that's going to get done. I know we just talked about the athletics moving. That's not an expansion move. It's not an expansion. It's just a relocation. Uh, but we will see that happen. In terms of another city getting a baseball team, oh, gosh. See, that's the tough part because where is the other market, right? Like Tennessee is a market because they have a, they have a, they have a hockey team. They have a football team. MLS team. Yes, they have a soccer team. I don't see, I don't see a New Orleans-type city ordeal. I don't see that. I mean, there were games played in Buffalo. That's where Toronto played during the COVID season. We don't need another New York team. There's that, no if the Mets didn't exist, I think that would that would be pretty cool. But <laughs> unfortunately, I don't see the market for another California team. My vote, I don't know about you, is for San Antonio because all they have are the Spurs. We we got three NBA teams in Texas. Why not? It's the lar- it's the largest city in the nation without a baseball team. I could see that because they're also trying to get an NFL team. I think baseball would be easier because I don't – neither of the baseball teams have the same market that the Cowboys do. Mm-hmm. So I think it would be easier to integrate a baseball team into San Antonio. Do people in Texas outside of Houston actually like baseball that much? <laughs> because obviously in Texas, football is king. We know that. I mean, we had those San Antonio Spurs go for the attendance record. Right, but there's a culture for that. The Spurs have a winning culture. They, they, they attract like the fans are loyal. 
I just don't see how a baseball team is going to fit into San Antonio. Yeah, it would have to be like a Vegas Golden Knights situation where they just show up and yeah. then they just start winning and no one is expecting it. I do like that Nashville pick, though. That, that feels like yeah. kind of the why don't they have a baseball team anywhere in the yeah. country. But funny enough that the city with populate or 500,000 people plus that is the farthest away from any MLB team is El Paso, Texas. Yeah, the closest MLB team to El Paso is Arizona Diamondbacks. Strange. <laughs> yes. El, El Paso and, getting an MLB team? Maybe. Potentially. There's no market. There's <laughs> hey, Common Fans. Adam here. If you want to support this podcast, the best way to do that is by hitting the follow button on whatever you're listening on. It's free, and it lets you know when new episodes drop. So go do it. Switching gears, recently we just saw the worst championship game <laughs> to have ever been played in almost any sport. <laughs> Probably ever. Uh, we're, and I'm talking about the Georgia TCU college football playoff final. Well, it might have been one of the worst championship games of all time, but I'm very happy with the result. TCU was incredibly overrated. I think it's more damning on Michigan by the fact that they even lost to TCU and gave up 51 points to them in general, because this game should have been a rematch of Georgia and Michigan from last year's semifinal, and it wasn't. This was a team that was selected to finish, I believe it was either what, sixth or seventh in the Big 12. Their starting quarterback, who finished second in the Heisman voting, wasn't even the starter to begin the season. I think they had a string of incredible luck. They had everything go their way the entire season. It just caught up to them at the end, and it really shows you a disparity in the level of programs between TCU and Georgia. Georgia is astronomically better than they are at every step and every facet of the game that was on full display. With that being said, we can now officially crown Georgia as the new top dog. They are the first back-to-back champions since Alabama in 2011 and 2012. They have the largest margin of victory in a championship game in the last, like, what, 50 years? Like, this is yeah. <laughs> in terms of college football, and there's a lot of blowouts in college football. And they look poised to three-peat. Their schedule next year is incredibly easy. <laughs> and Stetson Bennett's age 27 season. Yeah. Well, he's he's officially done. So <laughs> that's don't be surprised when the next quarterback is, is better. <laughs> they just have a stream of talent and five stars coming in. This is smelling like a dynasty, for sure. Bama, two losses this year, didn't quite look themselves. They even had their returning Heisman Trophy winner and Bryce Young come back. It's kind of scary to see that. Would you say this is a difference between how strong the SEC is? Is it more of this is how strong Georgia-Bama is? Because this is the banner flag for people who say that the SEC is the toughest conference and is the best place for football. I understand the argument for the SEC being the best conference. It's really just three teams. It's Alabama, Georgia, and LSU. That's it. The rest of them are garbage. Okay. They're not aside from like the the year where Auburn was good, right? There, you know, there's those random years where one extra yeah, team was Tennessee good. or a Florida. Um, right. And we saw what happened when Tennessee went up against Georgia. They got demolished. And it's gonna happen again next year, right? Those teams are just better than everybody else in general, and not just the SEC being better, right? Because we see the SEC still loses to other schools in bowl games. This isn't, you know, this isn't new. We've seen this happen before. No, but they don't want to be there. 
Oh, yeah, that's right. They don't want to be there. Forgot. They, they're disappointed that they didn't make the, the, the CFP, so they don't want to be at the bowl game. They don't try as hard. Yeah, so I feel so bad. Feel so bad for those Vanderbilt players that are just that just don't want to be there. <laughs> there. Yeah, you know, I feel I feel good for the Vandy players because they go to a great academic institution. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, when you look at the grand scheme of things, the rest of the SEC sucks. I'm sorry, they suck. <laughs> we saw what the Big Twelve showed as their. Not even their champion, but as one of their best teams, TCU. They played pretty great in, in that Michigan game, admittedly. But the disparity between Georgia and TCU doesn't show the conference, right? I think that just shows the program. Where I'm with you where Georgia and Bama are just so far ahead of the rest of the country that that's what this playoff final showed. Now, do you think that instituting a 12-team playoff will fix the problem of having a competitive finals format. With more teams involved, I think we'll see a higher chance for upsets to happen. The problem with the expanded playoff is is that it's just one game. Like, I understand why people don't want to expand. I'm a fan of expansion. More meaningful college football, right? Because you have more teams that are competitive at the end of the season because a team with nine wins can get in and we see a lot of teams with eight or nine wins towards the end of the season but my argument is kind of the opposite is i think that devalues the whole purpose of the regular season you know it's more important when an a&m upsets a bama because that is so detrimental for bama's cfp chances but now they can lose two still get into the playoff and then just railroad everybody until they face Georgia. Well, I think the important part to remember is, especially when it comes to the playoff committee, is it's choosing the best teams, right? So even if Alabama loses twice, are you going to say that a team would like a USC is better than Alabama? Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Which is why they shouldn't explain the (laughs) playoff. The problem with it right now is that there's way too much, there's no precedent set because they change the rules every year. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. Like we saw in the early, especially in the early college football era, we're now almost 10 years in. Next year will be the 10th year of it, by the way. <laughs> and we still can't find the right terminology for selecting said right. teams into said playoff. Right. Like my, I still follow the criteria that you have to be a conference champion to be in the playoff because you have, because if you don't win your conference championship, then you're not the best team in your conference. I'm sorry. You're not because it's the two. That's why I think I like eight teams, you know? Right. You have five from the Power Five, and you have three yes. at large. They're switching to a 12-team, which would have meant this year would have been the four top four would have had a bye, and then we would have watched Washington at Alabama, Penn State at Tennessee, USC at Clemson, Kansas State at Utah. Do we think those teams are were worth competing to f- face Georgia this year? Nope. No, it, this just seems like a huge roundabout way for, to get Bama to play Georgia in the final again. I think that's what this whole conspiracy is meant to be. True. But at the end of the day... And when do we stop? At the end of the day, if they're the two best teams in college football, and they're better than everybody else, shouldn't they be playing each other again? Yeah, but I get tired of that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, all, I'm kind of a hypocrite for that, I guess. I think we'll start to see some other teams creep in there to kind of give us a little bit more parity because there's a lot of schools that have a lot of rich alumni. And with the new NIL stuff, I think we're going to see a lot more dispersal of talent among college football programs because 
a kid is not going to go like we're not going to see like a gray shirt at Alabama anymore right? because somebody is going to pay that five star money to come to their school instead of waiting two years before playing at Alabama. I think that's the more likely scenario now. So, I mean, you're seeing it with the prospect. If you look at the prospect rankings now, mm-hmm. they have an NIL value attached to each team on like estimated average, et cetera. I think that's going to create more disparity. It's just going to increase the likelihood of people going to Bama and Georgia because that's where their name and likeness will increase the most. And I think it's, it's just going to be a baseball problem where they're going to have to institute a salary <laughs> cap <laughs> because you're going to have the New York Mets of Alabama and Georgia just buying all their best talent, which they did before probably, allegedly. The only programs that I could see maybe eventually getting there is unfortunately USC, Lincoln Riley, more time with that team. I think that this was just a spell of the reign of the Pac-12 that they'll have on the conference because that conference is very easy to take over at the moment. Any other programs, I don't feel that forward momentum to topple a Georgia or a Bama at the moment. Who's going to slay this beast now? And I don't feel that from any of these teams. And I don't feel that adding a 12-team playoff will do that either. I think all that does is add ancillary teams that don't have a real shot at the title to maybe get more money for college football. But where does it end, though? Are we going to go to a 16-team format eventually? Are we going to go to a... Are we going to go to a 32? T- are we just going to become March Madness where we have 64 teams in the playoffs all of a sudden? We can't. You can't do that with football. There's there's way too many. That's what we're, I thought. And then we're tripled in size in the past two years. Yeah. I mean, I get- <laughs> we went from a two team race to a four team race to a 12 team race. And it's like, well, where do we stop? Yeah. Do we even play the regular season anymore? Or do we just like start it off tournament style? <laughs> do we just do a battle royale? Do we, it's getting kind of ridiculous where, especially with the the conference realignment, where you're losing a lot of what made college football so impactful to people. Right. Is that regular season games mattered? The people you played were typically rivals because of location and geography. And also the team that plays on the final day of the year is the one that deserves to be there. So I think the more we add to the playoffs, that I think we lose a bit of that. So speaking of the NIL, probably the largest move of the, the coaching wave, Deion Sanders to Colorado. He's taking a, a lot of his Jackson State guys with him. He showed up to Colorado and said, if you're not good enough, I'm getting rid of you because y'all were horrible. He's a notable, excellent recruiter and can get good NIL deals for his players. What do you think he can do at Colorado with the rise of USC, with Oregon starting to pick up steam a little bit as well? I don't think it's his last stop. Well, Pac-12 is going to be tough next year because they have almost every team as a starting quarterback that if you put them on any other team would be that team's starting quarterback. The talent in that, from the quarterback position, in that conference next year is astronomically higher than the other ones, right? Especially with the returning Heisman Trophy winner, Caleb Williams. I don't think it's his last stop. I think he's going to he's going to make a couple ball games, and then he's going to be offered a contract from a from a from a big school. Um, the question is, what big school is that going to be? Because he can he can bring in the talent. He brought in five stars to an HBCU. You're right; it's never been done before. What's he going to do at Colorado? He just had all the players he signed with him at Jackson State come over with him to Colorado. Like, his players love him. They want to play for him. 
I think he's going to excel there. I really do. I think I think they're going to be a competitive team next year. I don't think they're going to light the world on fire to start. But after the season, when everyone sees how well he coaches and performs, you know, I the sky's the limit for him. I think he's I think he's the next big thing in college football. I mean, I'd agree with that. Like, if you're a kid and someone said, "Hey, you can play for a NFL Hall of Famer," the guy who basically invented swagger as an NFL player. It's like, why wouldn't you want to play for that guy? Plus, you can make a yeah. bag by going there. So if I had to project in the future, I'm, I'm just going to make this call now because I called the Hugh Freeze to Auburn mm-hmm. like four years ago, back when he got fired. And I was like, no, he would never go there. Auburn would never hire him. And I just want to say... You're going to say... You're going to say I'm going to put, put something into the future here. Ready? You're going to say Ohio Deion State. Sanders to Florida. Ooh. That's, that's the next step. Because I do see, I do agree with you that you do make a good point that this move to Colorado does feel a bit like a stepping stone. It doesn't seem like he's he's going to stop there. There's definitely going to be a bigger school that wants a bigger fish for him, bigger pond. And I think that SEC sounds about right, and Florida just I don't know something about it feels right. I can see that. I could also see a situation in where he excels in Colorado, and let's say Ohio State is not happy with Ryan Day's performance. Oh, Ohio Michigan. State, really? Against Michigan in the next upcoming years, because I think Harbaugh has the formula to beat them consistently now. And I would not put that out of the question. The factor is, is that what's going to happen first? Is he going to get the offer to another big school before that happens? Or is this all going to move quickly and he goes somewhere big sooner? Well, Nick, that was a lot of fun. Had a gr- great time this episode. Yeah, great time, Adam. Always fun talking to you. That is all the time that we have today, everybody. Thank you so much, and hope you all have a great day. Hey, 